Section 20 of the Byzantine Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botez. The Byzantine Empire. The Rear Guard of European Civilization. By Edward Ford. Section 20. The Komneni, the last great rally, part two. John Komnenos was about thirty-one at the time of his accession, a harsh-featured man of insignificant appearance, black-haired and so dark of complexion that the Constantinopolitans called him Mauro Johannes. But his character was in strong contrast to his unprepossessing personal appearance. He was by far the best of his line, strong, brave, hard-working, of excellent intentions, not without capacity for peaceful administration, mild and forbearing. The first internal event of his reign was a palace intrigue against him, directed by his sister. It was defeated, but the emperor took no harsh measures against Anna, and actually restored her forfeited property. He set himself to do all in his power to moderate the severity of taxation, which was now reaching a pitch of intensity like that in the earlier empire under Theodosius and Justinian. Zonaras, a retired minister of Alexius, and hardly likely, therefore, to be prejudiced overmuch against his order, says bitterly that, the best tradition of Roman kingship were dead, that constitutional government was a thing of the past, and that the Comnenian administration slaughtered the people like sheep, ate their flesh, and sucked their very marrow from their bones. Possibly this terrible indictment applies to the days of Manuel I rather than those of Alexius or John, but it is quite clear that the economic condition of the empire was steadily proceeding from bad to worse. The foundation of the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem had diverted to the Syrian ports much of the trade, which had formerly passed through the empire. The commercial privileges conferred on Italian cities had aggravated the evil. The vast revenue of the Macedonian emperors could not now be raised with ease. Everywhere the receipts showed signs of diminution. The deficit was made up by new and crushing exactions, with the natural result that the population declined steadily in prosperity. Worse still, the expenditure on the court was heavier than ever before. The many-branched imperial house absorbed vast sums yearly, Internal economics were entirely neglected. Roads and public works fell fast to decay. The old fear of further diminishing the revenue by employing taxpayers in the defensive services led to the repetition of the blunder of Theodosius and his successors. The army was swamped with expensive and more or less unreliable mercenaries. The vitally important naval force was allowed to decay.
John did his best. Details of his reforms are lacking, but there is no doubt that they consisted mainly in careful economy. He was a warrior by birth and training, but it does not appear that he waged unnecessary war. He curtailed expenditure on the court as far as possible. He seems to have had a strong personal dislike for ostentation. He had a great aversion for unnecessary bloodshed. Capital punishment was in abeyance during his reign. It is a thousand pities that we know so little of his measures, but there is no doubt that he won, as no Roman emperor had ever won, the love and trust of his people. Before long, the nickname Mauro Johannes was tabooed among the delighted Constantinopolitans, and for all time thereafter, the ugly dark-skinned emperor was Carlo Johannes. Men had recognized that the unsightly body enclosed a beautiful soul. In 1120, John took command in Asia and captured Lodicia and Sozopolis, thereby securing southern Phrygia. And in 1121, he recovered great part of Pisidia and Lycia. Alexius had held only the coastline. Next year, he was called to Europe by a Pechenegg invasion, which he repelled by a victory at Beroi in Hymus. In 1123, trouble threatened with the Servians. Next year, John drove them across the border. But they now called in the aid of the Hungarians, who in 1125 took Belgrade and advanced as far as Sofia. At a place called Kran, they were defeated by John, and for the rest of his reign gave no more trouble. In 1126, John again took the field in Asia Minor, invaded Paphlagonia and captured Castamon, which had been the seat of his family before the Seleuc conquests. The result of his first years was that the position of the empire in Asia had been much improved, and land communications established with Cilicia and Pontus. The emperor seems for the present to have been satisfied. For several years thereafter, he devoted his attention to internal affairs. It was doubtless during this period that most of his administrative reforms were carried out. There were some bickerings with the Venetians in 1127, which were successfully dealt with. The ten comparatively quiet years, 1127 to 1136, have another interest. John was busy refounding, resettling, and reforming. But it was then, probably, that he became thoroughly acquainted with the critical economic state of his realm. When, in 1137, he again took the field, his operations were directed towards Syria. Professor Oman considers that this policy was strategically false, but to the writer it seems that it was economically sound. The emperor probably hoped to obtain possession of the Syrian ports, and so control once more the trade of the Levant. In 1137, John entered Cilicia and established effective control 
over the Armenian state in the Taurus, and then entered Syria and took Antioch, making the Latin county tributary. Next year he invaded Mohammedan Syria. It was the first time for fifty years that the imperial eagles had been seen there. He was ill-supported by the Latins and failed before the Shezar, but in its main results the campaign was successful. John considered it decisive enough to permit him in the following year to devote his attention to the north. Here he was opposed by the Danish Mends, against whom he was entirely successful, taking Nixar, Neo-Cesarea, and considerably advancing the frontier in Paphlagonia and Pontus. His success alarmed the Seleucs of Rum, who in 1141 pushed raids into Phrygia and Bithynia. They were, however, repulsed, and in 1142 John retaliated. He conquered Pisidia up to the shores of Lake Caralis, removed the semi-independent cultivators on its islets into the empire, an ill-advised economic measure, as Finley points out, and marched triumphantly through southern Lyconia into Syria, wasted the county of Antioch, and then retired to Anazarabus, where he wintered, intending to take up again his great scheme of conquering Latin Syria. He was in the midst of his preparations, when, on a hunting expedition, his arm was accidentally pierced by a poisoned or dirty arrow. The wound mortified quickly, and on April 8, 1143, in his 55th year, John died. His reign of nearly 25 years had been very successful. Territory had been recovered. The administration carried out with an efficiency that it was never again to know, and the financial problem met by strict economy and prudence. Roman traditions had disappeared under the successors of Theodora III. Good and careful government passed away with John II, the one ruler of the Roman Empire whom his subjects called the Good. John's designated heir was his youngest son, Manuel, a curious figure in history, somewhat of a Byzantine cœur de lion. There was some natural family opposition, but Manuel was loyally supported by his father's Turkish minister, Aksuk, and seated himself on the throne with little difficulty. He was not devoid either of statesmanship or military capacity but was reckless, vain, fickle, and extravagant. The last vice was fatal in its effects on the empire. The results of John's wisdom were soon effaced. Taxation pressed harder and ever harder upon the provincials, and matters came at last to the sad condition which evoked the bitter observation of Zonaras. Manuel's reign is only a record of wars, some of them sufficiently purposeless, and none productive of really solid results. Manuel was a pronounced westernizer, alike in policy, in direction of conquests, and in matrimony. 
his ideas were directed to Europe. He neglected, during the greater part of his reign, his father's design of steady consolidation in the East. At first, however, he showed signs of following it up. In 1144, he took up command at Anazarbus and marched into Syria. Antioch was again entered, but Manuel was content to display his power and made no attempt to carry out his father's wider plans. He left in command in Cilicia his cousin Andronicus, one of the most extraordinary figures in Byzantine history, and returned to Constantinople. Andronicus was defeated by Tauros of Armenia in the following year. In 1145 and 1146, Manuel pushed raids far into Seleuc territory, but they were purposeless and had slight effect. In 1146, the fleet of the Normans of Sicily seized Corfu and raided Greece, sacking Thebes and Corinth, and carrying off many experienced artisans and silk weavers. Manuel, for the present, could not avenge the insult, for the hosts of Germany under Kaiser Conrad III and of France under Louis the Seventh were already descending upon him in the Second Crusade. There were more chances of friction in 1147 than there had been in 1095 to 1097, for the Emperor of the West was present in person. Manuel has been accused, like Alexius, of treachery, but there can be no doubt that the disasters which befell the Crusaders in Asia Minor were mostly due to their lack of elementary military science. The only man among them who appears as being in any sense capable of command was an obscure knight named Gilbert, who directed the march of the French army to Atalia. Both armies were either destroyed or otherwise reduced to impotence in Asia Minor by the Seleucs. A mere remnant reached Palestine. Then, in 1148, Manuel turned against the Normans. He recovered Corfu, and his fleet ravaged the coast of Sicily, though George of Antioch made a daring reconnaissance into the Propontis, firing arrows in defiance into the gardens of the imperial palace. There was little serious fighting, but peace was not formally made until 1155. Manuel was flattered by King William's expressions of submission, but of course, this conveyed nothing substantial. In the same year, the Servians made a raid into the empire. Manuel promptly advanced against them, defeated them on the Drina, overran the country, and reduced it to vassalage, though it needed constant punitive expeditions to retain it in anything like permanent subjection. Hostilities next broke out with Hungary, doubtless owing to Servian appeals and intrigues. Manuel forestalled the Hungarian attack, crossed the Danube, and wasted southern Hungary, garrisoning the captured towns. King Giza II attempted to recover Brantova, which was defended by Andronicus Komnenos, 
but the emperor relieved it by a rapid march though he considered his cousin's conduct so equivocal that he deprived him of his command in eleven fifty three peace was concluded servia was probably left in the lurch otherwise status quo was maintained in eleven fifty two andronicus who had been again entrusted with a command in cilicia was defeated by toros for the second time and disgraced by his certainly long-suffering relative and emperor after a considerable delay manuel entered cilicia in person in eleven fifty five brought toros to complete subjection and once more reduced antioch which under reginald de chatillon had shown signs of rebellion to submission remaining in the east until eleven fifty seven the seljuks of rum were now under the energetic sultan kilij arslan the second he attacked manuel on his homeward march but was severely defeated and thereupon made peace determining to consolidate the turkish possessions on the plateau before renewing war he was a man of considerable ability and in a visit made by him soon afterwards to constantinople he probably formed a good idea of the emperor's unstable character for some eighteen years thereafter there was peace at least nominally between the empire and the sultanate and during this period kilij arslan conquered and absorbed the danish manned emirate and united the whole central plateau under his rule in eleven fifty eight baldwin the third king of jerusalem was at constantinople and from that date thereafter the crusading state was always more or less dependent on the empire the agreement was sealed by the king's marriage to manuel's niece theodora in eleven sixty one the peace of hungary was broken giza the second in that year was succeeded by stephen the third but manuel claimed the right of nominating the successor and set up a prince named ladislaus stephen the third was driven from the throne but ladislaus only lived for six months manuel appointed in his place another stephen but he was detested as the symbol of the country's servitude and deposed stephen the third being reinstated manuel seems to have convinced himself that the new king's position was too strong to be assailed and in eleven sixty three again concluded peace stephen ceding the fortress of zugmin semlin and his brother taken to wife maria the emperor's daughter there was however civil war in hungary between the two stephens and manuel took advantage of it to invade the country once more peace was brought about by the mediation of the king of bohemia manuel in all this shows to poor advantage he concluded and broke treaties and made war with very slight reference to anything except his unstable desires 
Byzantine influence was evidently dominant in Hungary, but it does not appear to have been popular. In 1165, Stephen declared war and recaptured Zugmin, but next year Manuel came upon the scene, retook the place, and marched into Croatia. By the end of the year, he had conquered nearly the entire country between the Danube and the Adriatic, and had recovered Dalmatia, which, as we have seen, had been donated in fief to Venice by Alexius I, but had been conquered by Coloman of Hungary. In 1167, Manuel returned to Constantinople, and his troops in Hungary were severely defeated. He was himself in bad health, and in 1168 he could not take the field, but placed his nephew Andronicus Contostephanos in command. A great battle was fought near Zugmin, and the Hungarians entirely defeated. A treaty of peace followed, by which Manuel retained all Croatia and Dalmatia, up to the Save, and Zugmin and its neighborhood. Until the end of the Komnenian period, Hungary was politically subservient to the empire. In 1170, Manuel was approached by Amalric I of Jerusalem for assistance against Egypt. He assented, but the fleet which he fitted out, though over 200 strong, was of inferior quality. The navy had been so much neglected that it was impossible to produce a really effective force, and though the victor Zugmin was in chief command, he could effect little. Damietta was besieged, but the Latins gave little or no assistance, and the expedition was a failure. Amalric visited Constantinople next year. Perhaps he was obeying a summons. He probably had some awkward explanation to make. Manuel utilized the opportunity to make a display of his pomp and power. Amalric returned to Jerusalem, well furnished with gold. The emperor's help undoubtedly contributed much to the prolongation of the existence of the decaying crusading state. Meanwhile, war had broken out with Venice. The great naval republic was probably annoyed because Manuel had not renewed the grant to it of Dalmatia. Commercial jealousy also contributed to force on war. Manuel had entered into alliance with the Genoese and Pisans, who were rivals of Venice in the Levantine trade and with the commercial town of Ancona. Venice declared war in 1171. The struggle lasted for three years, but was absolutely indecisive. In 1172, Venice seized several Dalmatian ports and a fleet, under the Doge Vital Micheli, sailed up the Aegean and captured Chios. Manuel was again unprepared. Doubtless the failure of the Egyptian expedition had further disorganized the fleet, but by 1173 a large force had been put together, which proceeded to attack the Venetians. The latter had suffered terribly, 
from disease, and were in no condition to offer resistance. Chios was recovered, and finally only 17 shattered galleys reached Venice. So great was the exasperation and alarm that the unfortunate Doge was assassinated. The Venetian attack on Ancona was repelled with great loss, with the help of Ferrara and the Countess of Bertinoro, and in 1174 the Republic was glad to conclude peace on the basis of maintenance of the status quo ante. Then, too late, Manuel decided to resume the recovery of Asia Minor. The chances were less favorable than in 1097. Kilij Arslan had united all the Seljuk and Danishmand emirates beneath his banner. Manuel began operations by fortifying Dorileum and Subleon, near the headwaters of the Meander. This was treated by the Sultan as a casus belli. In 1176, Manuel gathered a large army at Lodicia and advanced on Iconium. Kelij Arslan had collected all his forces and attacked Manuel in the passes near Miriokephalon. The emperor displayed the grossest lack of foresight and precaution, and advanced without making any attempt to reconnoitre or even, as it appears, warning the officers to keep proper order. When the army was fairly entangled in the pass, Kelij Arslan gave the word to attack. Seljuk horsemen charged into the head of the crowded column and poured down the slopes on either side. The troops taken by surprise and without space wherein to deploy could make no effective resistance. Manuel lost his head and thought only of saving his life. His guards brought him safely through the disorder and carnage to Miriokephalon, but his spirit was broken, and so far from attempting to restore order among the fugitives who were pouring in, he sat in listless despair, though his forsaken troops were still making a gallant fight. Several officers succeeded in keeping their men together and in making a way out of the fatal defile. Andronicus Contostephanos, who commanded the rear guard, behaved in a manner worthy of his reputation. His position was the most dangerous of all, but the men closed their ranks round their victor of Zugmen and forced their way steadily ahead through the wild confusion. Their loss was heavy, but the general and all who survived got through safely and in order to the emperor. The army had been as much frightened as mauled. Half of it, probably, never struck a blow, but the slaughter had been great, and it had lost all its stores, military chest, and baggage. Yet it rallied quickly, and the Seljuk horde made no attempt to close. The Sultan probably recognized that his victory had been due to exceptional circumstances. Manuel himself had lost heart. His self-confidence had been shattered forever. The excellent conduct of his nephew and other generals only threw his own poor behavior into higher relief. In his distress after his flight, he asked for water, but when it was brought, he dropped it in horror, 
as he saw its crimson tinge. Christian blood, he groaned. And from the gloomy groups about him, a voice spoke out boldly. What of it, Augustus? You have drunk your subject's blood all your reign. It was a bitter allusion to the remorseless taxation which had crushed the life out of the empire. One wonders if the bold speaker knew Zonaras, and what was his after-fate. So low had Manuel's spirit sunk, that he despaired of making his way home, and made overtures for peace. Kilijarslan was nothing loath. He exacted only that Dorileum and Subleon should be dismantled. Manuel consented and destroyed the walls of Subleon, which was not far off, but the energetic remonstrances of the staff appeared to have recalled him to himself, and he repudiated the treaty. In 1077, Kilijarslan sent a large army down the Meander. It took or received ransom from Trails and Antioch, and storming several fortresses, made its way to the coast, where it filled a cart with sand and seashells to prove to its sultan that it had indeed looked upon the Mediterranean, but it did not bring them back. On its retreat it was attacked by John Ducas Vatasis and utterly defeated. Kilijarslan thereupon invaded Cilicia and besieged Cladiopolis, but Manuel now more of his former self, arrived by forced marches from the west, and swept the besiegers across the mountains to Iconium. In 1078 peace was concluded, apparently on the basis of the status quo. The Seleucs might snatch a success, but were clearly no match as yet for the empire. But Manuel had one little credit, it was Andronicus Contostephanos who had saved the disaster at Myriocephalon from becoming a catastrophe. It was Vatasis who had repelled the invasion of 1077. Manuel died on September 24, 1080, at the age of 58, after a reign of 37 years. His character has been demonstrated by the record of his actions. He was not the equal of his two predecessors, who were both tolerable statesmen and good soldiers, and of whom John was certainly a successful administrator. Manuel was a crowned knight-errant. His best political designs were spoiled by feeble execution. Even in Hungary, where his success was considerable, he showed great vacillation. His conduct at Myriokephalon shows him in a very bad light, and in strong contrast to his indomitable grandfather. His internal administration was as bad as it well could be, conducted without regard to any other consideration than the payment of his mercenary armies. Externally, despite the comparative failure of 1176 to 1178, the empire was great and powerful. It had extended towards the west 
and Hungary was its vassal. Its influence was still great in the Caucasian region. But internally, matters were almost hopeless. The free agricultural population of Europe was disappearing, as that of Asia had done. The people were ground down by exactions. Everything was in disorder. There was a splendid court and a fine army, and that was all. The empire was a whited sepulchre already tottering, ready to fall before a vigorous push, unless heroic measures were taken. Manuel's successor was his son Alexius II, the offspring of his third wife, Maria of Antioch. His short reign was chiefly occupied in struggles for the regency. The young emperor's relative, Alexius, was the chief assistant of the empress mother at first, but he was gradually supplanted by Andronicus, that first cousin of Manuel, whom we have already more than once encountered. After his second fiasco in Cilicia, he had been imprisoned for many years, but after strange vicissitudes and extraordinary adventures had been pardoned. His character was as strange as his escapades and adventures. Professor Oman curtly describes him as an unscrupulous ruffian, but this is only a part of the truth. He was a ruffian, but a most able and accomplished one. He was entirely reckless of human life, but he was a statesman, a better one than any of the Comnenian Caesars. Scoundrel as he was, he won the passionate love of more than one woman. He was a man of singularly temperate life, and at seventy was still strong and hardy, with the facial aspect of a middle-aged man. In 1183, he finally obtained the upper hand. Alexius Komnenos and the distinguished general Andronicus Contostephanos were blinded. Maria, the emperor's sister, poisoned. And the hoary schemer completed the bloodbath by strangling both the young emperor and his mother. When the murderers had done their work, he came to view the dead and kicked the emperor's corpse as it lay. Your father was a villain, he said, your mother a harlot, and you were a fool. How much of the sweeping assertion was true is doubtful, and for Andronicus to make it was like Satan rebuking sin. By such means Andronicus obtained the supreme power and another side of his complex character came into play. He set vigorously to work to reform the administration. He abolished the sale of offices, which under the Komneni had become common, and effected great improvements in the administration of the law. He set himself sternly against the overshadowing influence of the aristocracy, and his capacity and grim energy made him a dangerous antagonist. There were rebellions against him, but they were of family origin, not popular in any sense of the word. The most prominent 
was that of Isaac Komnenos, governor of Cilicia. Andronicus was quite capable of dealing with them. He spoke of marrying again. He was so handsome and vigorous, despite his seventy-four years, that the idea seemed not all absurd. More dangerous than a rebellion was an invasion of the Sicilian Normans in 1185. Their army took Durazzo and marched with little opposition across Macedonia to Thessalonica, which also fell into their hands. Andronicus was preparing to march against them when the end came. His anti-aristocratic policy had now fully developed, and execution after execution drove the nobles to despair. One of them, Isaac Angelos, arrested in his house, cut down the imperial emissary and raised a revolt. Andronicus had earned hatred on every side, and no one would lift a hand on his behalf. He was absent from the capital, and when he returned was seized and slowly done to death. He bore his sufferings with a patience which might have become a better man. With all his monstrous vices and crimes, he was probably the ablest of the Kamneni. At all events, the only one who clearly discerned the signs of the times, and his death was a fatal blow to the declining empire. End of section 20 Recording by Mike Botez.